Welcome to the GoTo Podcast. In this episode, Farron Wallace and Benjamin Mitchell discuss psychological biases at work, how we can tackle them, and how we can wire the brain to overcome them. GoTo gathers the brightest minds in the software community to help developers tackle projects today, plan for tomorrow, and create for a better future. Stay up to date with the latest in tech through GoTo's top-rated events held online and in person in cities like Chicago, Amsterdam, London, and Copenhagen, and by subscribing to the GoTo Conference's YouTube channel, where you can find thousands more high-quality dev talks. Learn more at gotopia.tech. My name is Prem Toro. I am part of the program committees for our GoTo conferences. Part of making software is understanding each other as human beings, because at the end of the day, it's human beings writing software, most often for human beings. So the human factor in things is very important to what we do. With me today, I have Farron Wallace and Benjamin Mitchell. I will just let the two of you give a brief introduction on your focus here. Sure. So, uh, hi, I'm Farron Wallace. Uh, I'm a consultant at a company called Open Credo based out of London. Uh, and I really enjoy consultancy because it lets you keep doing hands-on programming, but also you get uh, really interesting human situations. And I find those quite fun. Uh, and I'm Benjamin Mitchell. I'm a partner in a software consultancy in London called Eagle Experts. Uh, and uh, I work with teams of teams doing uh, agile and pragmatic approaches to delivering software. And one thing I know that is very close to your hearts, that is um, the bias that we apply to the decisions we make at work. Um, what are these psychological biases that we deal with in working situations? So the brain is a spectacular machine, a spectacular computer, but uh, it's not necessarily been, been designed to program uh, and not necessarily designed to work with other people in a technical capacity. And so you often find that there are lots of, uh, lots of individual biases and biases that combine together in a team to uh, occasionally have a detrimental effect on a project as a whole. So, um, for example, people can be quite, uh, quite optimistic about how long it's going to take to get something done in the software world. That's a fairly common one. Um, there are things like you're much more likely to believe um, or be persuaded by someone who you think well of, even if this idea, it turns out, they don't know a huge amount about. Um, there's a whole, a whole host of these different biases uh, that can um, turn up. And spotting them is really hard when you're, when you're in the midst of trying to get something done. And I'm really passionate about uh, understanding the biases. I think it's amazing to hear about how our brain uh, can be tricked uh, and then using approaches in a team or the way we deliver the software that tries to take them into account so that we don't have to be perfect because I think there's, there's too much evolutionary wiring that we're operating against but doing things like uh, frequently releasing software to customers so that we can measure so that we, we make sure that the amount of time where we're wrong is as small as possible or doing things like pair programming where we're asking someone that is outside of our head who's more likely to see the biases that we're bringing impacting what we're doing, working together. So uh, a lot of uh, my focus is how do we take these biases into account and design ways of 
uh, acknowledging them rather than trying to become more perfect by overcoming them uh, and then build them into the team's practices and the way we build the software so that we're less impacted by them. So accept, accepting them, that is the way to overcome them. Yes. I mean, for me, I, I went to see Daniel Kahneman talk about his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, and he's the guy that invented them, and yeah. he's pretty clear that he can't overcome them. So I, I think it's a fairly futile direction to head in to think, if I'm aware of my biases, uh, I can be cleverer than them. Uh, I like his humility in the face of the bias to think, I'm not going to spot when I'm being influenced by a bias, but then I can do things like, you can probably see what I'm blind to, And, and if I can create a safe space for you to tell me, mm -hmm. I think you're, this could be a, a recency fallacy or I'm being swayed by uh, someone's power, uh, then we can be more effective together. The, the right direction isn't to attack them head on. You briefly touched this in, in your introduction. Are brains actually suited for software development? Well, they seem to get the job done. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, they weren't, the brain is the culmination of many, many millennia of, uh, of various things happening to it uh, on an evolutionary scale. And the human brain is pretty well optimized for being flexible, um, as far as I can tell. Uh, they seem to cope well with a variety of situations and they adapt fairly well to those situations. Um, so in the sense that the human brain can can learn anything, you can get software done. Um, I think inevitably that we are carrying around the rest of the stuff with us. So we're, um, we are prone to getting angry, especially when our ideas are being questioned. Um, uh, and we're prone to, yeah, other little quirks that make us more reactive. And if we, if we understand that we're being reactive and we know that's sort of in our natures, then we can uh, feel the reaction and then go, okay, Yep, that was that was an emotional reaction to someone criticizing me. Uh, let's now f process that and then think about what I'm going to do uh, do about it. And if if actually the reason I'm feeling an emotional response is because I was actually wrong, because quite often it's is that a cultural thing? A cultural thing. Yeah. Um, I think different teams have a different different levels of openness, um, and also different people get on in different ways. Um, and if you've got if you've got very opinionated people all working together, and they all have a different view of how to do stuff, um, they're going to have to find a way to work together, or if necessary, just go do something different if, if it's not going to work. And especially in a global world, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Talking about biasing our decisions, uh -huh. it's very much about that. I have a feeling that what you're saying is wrong mm -hmm. as compared to my opinion about how the world looks like. What is the difference between, between being just passionate about things and me being that irritating guy that just knows better? So I think it's important to look at uh, how we see this playing out. So uh, what I'm so excited about working with teams is that uh, approaches like uh, Agile and 
and, and others bring in roles like uh, delivery leadership or scrum master. So there's a role for someone to help the team work effectively together as humans. Uh, and so if I saw someone uh, who is very passionate, we want that. I, I talk about we want to have all of the ideas out on the table so that we have the best selection to be with. I think the issue often comes when someone believes in the value of their idea, but someone sees it differently. So what do we do from that point? Uh, and uh, what I like is sort of two directions in software development. One, where we're doing a very sort of test-driven culture. Uh, there's, a, there's a great mechanism built into that. Uh, let's write the test that would show us what the right way forward would be, and then we can partner together on, on doing this, which I also think is a good human negotiating point of view. Uh, the other thing is if someone is really passionate and they disagree with others, you might see them stopping effective behaviours, like they're not asking for inputs from others, uh, or they might uh, be doing some behaviours that shut others down or make it less likely for them to talk. So trying to facilitate the group or get the team to facilitate and say, it's, it's fantastic that you're so passionate about it and we really want that help. I also noticed that others in the group uh, haven't said how they see it. I was wondering whether anyone saw it differently. So using facilitation behaviours in order to balance uh, across the team and, and encourage an environment where everyone feels psychologically safe to contribute and say if they see things differently. Yeah, that's a really important one, actually, getting, getting the quiet people to, to speak, because otherwise they, if they're not on board with the process, they're going to, I don't know, feel, feel left out of it and just not want to contribute to it. And then they will feel, they might feel resentful or, I don't know, not wanting to contribute to the team anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Which, yeah. That's why, it's so ex why I was so excited having come from a psychology background into software development to see things like team-based approaches uh, with built-in feedback mechanisms. So you've got the unit tests, you've got the daily stand-ups, you've got the retrospectives. So I think it's a really effective way of saying, hey, we do have these brains and we might be stretching their capabilities and doing more abstract work than we've done through evolution. But we've got these mechanisms built in to work together with other humans to get this job done. Uh, that we're not just looking at superheroes in front of a computer translating requirements into abstract syntax, uh, but it's more uh, a team-based approach uh, with a focus, too, on users and user needs uh, pulling through effective software. So uh, really fantastic to be involved in an industry that sees that need for the balance of approaches. That's not far from when we talk about bias and me knowing better. It's not... It's not far from that to, I should respect this guy because he resides somewhere higher in the hierarchy than I do. Should we find that? I mean, at the end of the day, hierarchy is, I guess, is what has brought evolution so far. Yeah, I mean, I certainly I have friends who are psychologists who, who uh, uh, raise dogs and they have a very alpha hierarchy and it's definitely groups that we see in animals. So. I, I'm clear that that has to be part of who we are. In terms of finding it, I think the issue for me would be, are you getting the results that you want? Uh, and so if there's a tendency for people not to question senior people and ask them to explain their reasoning, uh, you might be fine in that scenario or it might produce problems. If there are problems, then I think there are some useful things we can do to create a culture where uh, through the leader's own behaviour, like uh, inviting others to question their reasoning or to say if you don't hear it, Uh, that we could encourage a different culture that balances those things out if that's important for you, for the situation that you're in. Yeah, I think I think respect and respect in both directions is important, really. Um, there's different levels of respect. There's there's uh, 
yeah, there is a form of respect that can happen whilst questioning their decisions politely. Um, and hopefully they're responsive to that sort of polite questioning. Um, if there is not the respect either way and you're just sort of getting requirements dropped on your head or I don't know, implementations dropped on your head, then finding ways to sort of gently get them to explain their reasoning um, gets, gets fairly important, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's so easy to talk about this and how we could deal with it um, right now because we're not in such a situation. We know when we kick off a project that at some point this project will bump into one of these situations. Why don't we always start day number one, project day number one, by talking about this? I think we do sometimes. Like, uh, for example, teams I've worked with will use future perspectives. So uh, we'll do an exercise where we say, let's, let's acknowledge now uh, the, the work we're going to do together, the product that we're going to deliver, and let's assume it went well. Uh, what stories can we tell each other around what went well and why? Uh, and then to, to cover the bias that sometimes people don't want to appear negative or don't want to appear critical, uh, I've done it with teams that we play at the other direction. So we say, let's imagine for a moment that it's gone terribly. It's, it's a catastrophe. Uh, what do we think we'd see that made it catastrophic? And what do we think would have contributed to that catastrophe? And so that's, that's an example of designing a thing where we're trying to overcome people's tendency to appear supportive uh, and positive, uh, but we also need to think through what might go wrong and make it discussable. So that, that, that negative future perspective allows people to safely raise concerns uh, and then to talk it through in a way that's not personalised, so it's more likely to be respectful and, and an effective conversation. Should we even identify personas up front when we kick off a project like, oh, I know I'm going to have a problem, trouble with this person in the project group. That's <laughs> <laughs> a pretty brutal way of kicking off. Yes, it's, yes. we'll pin yeah. this target on your back, just so we're yeah. all aligned. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, I think, uh, I, I think the challenge with that is if we label another person as the problem <laughs> and we predict we're going to have the problem, it might become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, yeah. which is, I think, one of our sort of cognitive biases that we, yeah. we pattern match towards our expectations. Uh, certainly the work I do, I think the leaders, back to the hierarchy, if a leader demonstrates behaviour uh, that can be effective, that makes it easier for others. Uh, uh, and so, I, like, I've worked with groups where I'll say sometimes you can have a conversation and be too caught up in a point-to-point conversation at a stand-up mm-hmm. and other people will be frustrated but won't want to say because it might be critical. And so we'll put in protocols like, If you think someone is talking too long or uh, just involving one other person and not the group, raise your hand. And mm-hmm. uh, because we don't want that to be an autocratic decision, if two, you need two hands to be raised mm-hmm. uh, before it, uh, it happens. And, and just briefly, what I found in my own experience is that two, the, the first two times I introduced this to a team and we, we decided we'd go with it, it was me that demonstrated ineffective behaviour uh, by talking too long to one person. And not only did I not spot people putting up their hands, people had to yell out that they had their hands up <laughs> because I was completely in an argumentative tunnel yeah. with these other people. Yeah. So I think showing it through our own behaviour is, is a useful way. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I'm trying to imagine the situation where in the initial project kickoff, you sort of say, hey, I know I don't get on with you, but we're going to work together on this. I feel like... Well, it might not be that outspoken. It yeah. might just be that I have a feeling that I'm not going to get very well along with you. So I might prepare myself 
for what will come at some point okay. during the project. All right. Yeah, I feel like if your if your communication is sort of that open and I guess healthy with people that you're 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 willing to to in in the, in the sort of first day go at it. I don't know. I feel like maybe maybe that everyone would get through, but it would be it might be messy. I'm not really sure. Do you know when to give up a difficult relationship at work? So a couple of things. One is you never have to get on with someone at work. Like that, that would be my opener. That, yeah. uh, it's, it's up to each person as a grown-up to decide where they are. There might be some impacts of that decision. Uh, if you think it's an unworkable situation from someone else, clearly that would impact a team. So there might need to be some discussion about what happens around that. Uh, one bias I've seen is that often people jump to the conclusion uh, that they can't work together um, before they've spoken effectively about what mm-hmm. what what scenarios specifically contribute to these feelings. Um, and we, we often jump to conclusions. I once uh, fled a team uh, because I felt criticised by somebody else because they flared their nostril at me, um, which had this massive personal impact. Huh. And I, I stepped out of the building because uh, I was so upset. Uh, and then uh, the person had no idea uh, that, that they were flaring their nostril at me. And it was a complete <laughs> overreaction on my side. So uh, being able to overcome the, the tendency to jump to conclusions, particularly around other people's motives, like this guy is judging me and thinks I'm ineffective yeah. Yeah. Uh, by being able to talk about it, uh, has certainly served me well. And that's what I focus on with teams, trying to create scenarios where it's safe to have those conversations before it gets to the point that you think, I just can't work with this person. Yeah. So good job you went back and found out that what was going on. Otherwise, yes. you just thought this guy was your enemy forever. Yes, we became friends after having the conversation. So we, we, <laughs> we, we both learned. That pretty much answers the next question I had in mind, because that was if you have any examples of that you were actually able to change <laughs> bias significantly. Yeah, I'm just... I, I, I'm very humble to the, the fact that uh, I, I can make small productive steps forward and I continue to make the same mistakes over and over again. Uh, and so it's, it's uh, building up that ability to ask others to help, like in the, the two-hand scenario. That's why I like working with teams so much, because I think if you can build quality relationships with other people, uh, it, it gives you a lot of uh, opportunities for them to help you out. But it needs to feel safe. Yeah. Uh, I think before we have the relationships, uh, it, it can be much harder. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know that it made huge strides other than continuing to invest in, in working together with others with strong relationships uh, in order to have that increased safety. That's pretty nice. Um, I'm thinking of some of a, a recent time when I sort of went into a client who, who was doing things in a particular way that they'd done for a long period of time. And one of the, uh, the nice things about coming into um, someone else's team and having a look around is you get this external perspective on how they're working. And you can, you can quite quickly sort of see see what patterns they have fallen into. You can't necessarily openly say uh, say things to try and change that, but yeah, you can help with behaviours and sort of suggesting, suggesting ideas that can um, help them solve certain patterns and find ge- gentle ways of introducing new techniques and tools that they haven't got direct experience with, but you can you can sell those tools to them based on the um, the advantages. Oh, sorry, based on the problems they're having. So, 
coming at it sort of straight on sometimes doesn't work, but sort of helping them, yeah, seeing it from their perspective, as you were saying in your talk. Um, helping understand their problems allows you to sort of change their behaviours for the better. Assuming they are the problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's... I tend to... I've been in enough, enough software delivery situations now where I have sort of looked around and realised things aren't perfect. Things are never perfect in software. There's always, there's always tech debt and there's always things you want to change, but you don't have time to. And then you sort of come into some, and see someone else's situation. They've got loads of tech debt and things aren't as they would want. And normally, normally they're not, they're not dumb. It's sort of willful. It, nothing is willful. It's just, it's just how things are. And they've sort of run out of energy to change it. So if you can find some ways of giving them new energy to change how they're doing stuff and help them, then they're going to really enjoy the experience of change, hopefully. And, and I've found too, I mean, I, I like that phrase, if, if uh, the finger of blame usually points back at us. So if, if, if you're confident that someone else is the problem, it's nearly always that you're doing something to contribute to that scenario and its continuation. Uh, and, and some of the things I've done is uh, if I'm struggling with someone, I'll write down uh, the dialogue that I'm having with them to try and understand how I'm contributing. Yeah. Um, but it's remarkable how hard the brain, my brain at least, finds this because I've even written down dialogue like that and taken it to a study group to get input from other people and I thought they're going to find nothing they can help me with here mm -hmm. because I'm working with an <laughs> someone who's a very bad person uh, and uh, uh, it's, it's always been remarkable. Uh, I, I sort of go, guys, there's nothing, there's nothing that's as good as I can be. Yeah, they're yeah. looking at me going, uh, you know, when you said you were listening here, uh, I don't see any question actually in anything that you've written. Can you tell me more about how you were listening? So uh, I think if, you, if you're certain someone else is the problem, it's, it's probably a good input that uh, there's some material that you could look at with the help of others to find out how you might be contributing. True. Most often it takes two parties to build a conflict. It does. And I yeah. think I, and it depends where you want to go because uh, sometimes it's just not worth the investment to improve that situation. And, and if you don't want to, I wouldn't. I wouldn't invest or be realistic about it. But uh, what I've found is that there are ways of improving the scenario through my own behaviour. Um, like with the nostril flaring fellow, uh, being able to say earlier, I think you have a different point of view than I do. Uh, and I'm worried that you're critical of something that's going on. Can I just check? Is that what's going? Would have saved me fleeing the building. Uh, but I, uh, I needed practice at asking questions and being comfortable when someone else had a very different view, and maybe even a critical view of me. I think that's a very constructive way to end this conversation. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the GoTo Podcast. Head over to gotopia.tech for lots more content from the brightest minds in software development.